statements that Jesus said, things that um, often outraged people, yet somehow seem to have stood the test of time and in fact have become very much the cornerstone beliefs of the Christian faith across the world, followed, worshipped by billions of people. And we've been looking at some of those statements over the last few weeks, and this morning we're going to unpack another one, a very well-known claim, an extreme claim, when you uh, really look at it. What is it? Well, let's read, shall we? John um, John chapter 10, verses 14 to 30. I'm going to be missing out verses 16 and 17, so here we go. You can follow it up on the screen. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority, says Jesus, to lay it down, and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Now the Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were gathered around him saying, the Jews who were gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense, Jesus? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are, you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father am one. Let's pray. Yeah, I thank you, Lord, for uh, your words, your amazing words. I thank you, Lord, that your words bring life. They're not just a knowledge. They're not just to give us a good, fuzzy feeling. But actually, your words have the power to bring life into our very souls. And I pray this morning, as we study your very words, the things you said, I pray by your Spirit that you do a work in everyone here this morning and bring life, bring life. Wake us up, Lord, with your life-giving words. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to get rid of my chewing gum, excuse me. There we go, done. Otherwise it would have went flying across the room and stuck onto that um, somewhere. So Jesus says, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Wow! Remember I said this last time. And by your faces, I can see once again, you look as shell-shocked as last time about that radical statement. World-changing claim. No, well, hopefully you will be over the next half an hour. Now, where's the microphone? Can I have a volunteer, please? A volunteer. Just stick your hand out. I'm not going to... I'll come to you in a minute. Um, Oh, brilliant. Okay, I'll come to you in a minute. Matthew. 
Can you do an impression, your best impression, of a sheep? <laughs> no, this is serious. Just audible or visual as well? Get on with it. <laughs> Come on, who can beat that? Well done, Matthew. Who can beat that? Can you do an impression of a sheep? <laughs> now you wished you never put your hand up, didn't you? A laughing sheep. Hey, come on, there must be someone better than that. Who else can do a wonderful impression? Well done. Give them all a round of applause. That was very good. You know what, sheep? are everywhere in this room particularly. Sheep are everywhere. They're all over the place in the Bible. I bet you didn't know this. Get this. The word sheep appears in the Bible more than the word grace. Really? The word sheep turns up in the Bible twice as often as the word prayer. The word sheep appears three times more often than the word church. It's amazing, isn't it? By the way, if you're wondering what, you, what Raj does to relax on Easter weekends, there you have it. He counts sheep and doesn't fall asleep. In fact, sheep and shepherds were everywhere in the ancient world. In our day, most of us have probably never, ever met a sheep, but in, uh, met a sheep, met a shepherd, met a shepherd. But in Jesus' day, they were common. And people knew what you were saying when you mentioned the word sheep and shepherd. And probably actually understood them differently, very differently from the way we think of them today. You see, we can read things like this that we've just read. And we can read about sheep and shepherds and think, how lovely, we're the lovely sheep. Jesus is our good shepherd. How beautiful, how sheep, how, how sweet, bah. However... If you're thinking that, you've missed it. Because when Jesus' listeners heard the word sheep, they wouldn't have been thinking of fluffy, woofy little lambs and barbar black sheep and warm, woolly jumpers. No way. In Jesus' day, sheep were stinky, dirty, dumb, stupid, helpless, totally dependent animals wandering off into their own world, oblivious to the world around them. That's what they thought about sheep. Now, now, why don't we just spend a few moments just reflecting on that and what Jesus is saying about you. You don't want to do that for too long, do you? You see, the bottom line is this. Sheep needed, more than anything, a shepherd who would look after their every need, who would take control. And really, that's the challenge for us all, I think, this morning. Jesus is saying that, like sheep, we are all lost in sin, our sin and our human failings. And all our life has been spent searching for a shepherd, the shepherd, the shepherd to take control of us, to rescue us even. And we've looked for those things in partners, in parents, in girlfriends, boyfriends, bosses, maybe leaders, even yourselves. We are searching for a shepherd. 
And Jesus here cuts to the chase and says, unless you realize that I am the one and only true shepherd, you are always going to be restless, you are always going to be disappointed, and you're always going to feel like something, someone, is missing. And so that's what this passage is about, isn't it, really, if you, if you think about it? Is he... Jesus, the true shepherd or not? Is this Jesus the one he says he, says he is or not? And so what I want to briefly unpack for you this morning is that he is the one. He is the one. And this passage gives us three very good reasons, very good reasons, why he is our true shepherd. And those, and those three reasons this morning are going to be, firstly, he gives himself Totally, He gives himself totally for you. No one else will do that in the way Jesus does that for you. Secondly, he knows you totally. No one else knows you like Jesus does. And thirdly, he is God totally. No other serious religious leader would claim that. He gives himself totally, he knows you totally, and he is God totally. That's where we're going to be going this morning. So firstly... This true shepherd, Jesus, gives himself totally for you. Now, most people find the facts about Jesus' torture and savage death on the cross, at, at, the, at the very least, uncomfortable, but more likely, grossly offensive. Jesus, unlike most other leaders who have influenced nations or even changed the world, is remembered not so much for his life, but for his gruesome death, isn't he? In fact, the death of Jesus for our sins is at the heart of the gospel. The good news of Christianity. The best news that Christians have ever heard. And here in this passage, we hear crystal clear from the mouth of Jesus that he himself was emphatic that the primary purpose of his coming to earth was to suffer and to die on a cross. Look how strongly he puts it. He says... I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Why did Jesus have to face death? How come he gave himself totally for us? Let's just talk about death, shall we, for a little bit. Easter holidays and whatnot. The Bible tells us that death comes only to sinners. What's a sinner? Well, the Bible's description of sin is a life disregarding, dishonoring, and disobeying God. A life not submitted radically to God. A life refusing to find its deepest identity and relationship and service to God. That's what the Bible describes sin as. And because of sin, the Bible tells us, we have become the victims of death. Death is now our great enemy. Death, if you like, is now our executioner. Death is out to get us because of sin. That's how the Bible puts it. Now, I know a lot of people, um, your friends, maybe people here this morning, wouldn't agree with that. Our secular world has very different views of death. I remember when my uh, mum and Robin died some 
17 years ago now. I remember them uh, in the Chapel of Rest uh, in North Ormersby at Ralph's, dressed in nice clothes and makeup, looking like they weren't as dead as they really were. I remember at the funeral carrying their bodies on my shoulder, uh, uh, closed up in a, a beautiful wooden box, so none of us had to stare death in the face. I remember the chaplain at the crematorium trying to console me. He said things like, death is a natural part of life. Death is something we are to accept. Death is just the way it is. They're in a better place now. All their suffering is now over. You see, that's what most people try to convince themselves, don't they? But do you know what? The more I've pondered those uh, very well-meant words, and I've had a few years to think about it, I've come to the conclusion that it's rubbish. Everything inside us tells us that's not the case at all. We hate, we fear, we dread the idea of dying, don't we? That's why we clunk-click every trip. That's why we have airbags and car seats and penicillin and heart surgery and chemotherapy. We don't want to die. Because it's not natural. A New York pastor, Tim Keller, writes this, Whenever you're in the presence of death, you know an enemy has been here. You know there's nothing natural about it. It's a monstrosity. It's a perversion of what should be. But what is fascinating here as we read this passage is that that this isn't the case with Jesus. Death wasn't his enemy. Death had no claim on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus never sinned. Jesus could never be a natural victim of death. Not at all. But what's fascinating in this passage is that Jesus says he voluntarily lays his life down for you and me, the sheep. No one takes it from him, but he lays it down of his own accord for you, for me. He takes it all. He gives himself totally. This wasn't some suicide mission. No way. He walks He walks into our execution room. He stands in front of the missiles that were aimed at us. He faces the excruciating torment of eternity separate from God his Father that only we deserve because of our sin. He took hell into his very soul so that we, you, 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 would never have to. You see, death had no claim on Jesus. Death couldn't come to Jesus. Jesus had to come to death. Voluntarily, sacrificially, lovingly. Why? For you and me. If you trust in the saving work of Jesus on the cross, death no longer has a grip on you. You look look forward to the certainty of life, of eternity with God, with Jesus beyond the grave. That's what the Bible tells you. That's what Jesus promises you. That is your secure hope. And do you know what? Knowing that jubilee, it affects your whole outlook on life. Because no longer are you hemmed in by death. 
these 70 or 80 years, if you're lucky, that we have. God calls each and every one of you to live in the truth that you, as a lover of Jesus, has eternity in your spirit. And so God says this morning, live like it. Jesus says, live like it. Don't be addicted to safety. Because we have a big vision, don't we, Jubilee? Teesside and the cities and the places beyond, the nation beyond, the nations beyond, Turkey, Tanzania, Canada, um, the Lake District. We have a big vision. And God wants us to think with the huge eternal perspective of God. How does this truth change your day to day? Because if you let it, it will radically. Don't be hemmed in by death. Don't be addicted to safety. That's why the Apostle Paul could confidently, securely say, where or death is your victory? Where or death is your sting? And he could press on through trials and danger and the seemingly impossible. He knew that his saviour had overcome death. He knew that his saviour had gave himself totally. And that fueled his missionary zeal, his missionary passion. You know what? Those of you who have families, take your family on that adventure too. Point one. So he gives himself totally, unlike anyone else. Secondly, he knows you totally. He knows you totally. You know what? That is another amazing statement by Jesus. He says it in verse 14. I know my sheep, you and me, and my sheep know me just, get this, just as the Father knows me. Amazing. Radical. He knows you as the Father knows him. That's what he's saying. Modern writers tell us that one of uh, our greatest dilemmas in life is that on the one hand, human beings desperately strive to be known. Being successful, looking good, finding love, tweeting, X Factor. And yet on the other hand, we desperately don't want to be known. We want to hide. We're ashamed of being known. And if you really think about it, it's the root of many of our problems. Um, In John Paul Sartre's famous play, No Exit, about his version of the afterlife, not a Christian version of the afterlife, in his version of the afterlife, three dead guys, French guys, Garcin, Inez, and Estelle, are punished by being locked in a room together forever, for eternity. Nowhere to get away, nowhere to hide. And there, they drive each, other's, drive each other crazy. Some of you might be able to relate to that, depending on who you live with. And there's a famous line in which one of the characters describes what hell will be like. And he says this, Hell, shame, is the only original feeling of having my being on the outside engaged in another being, and as such, without any defense, illuminated by the absolute life, light. It's a little bit complicated, that, isn't it? What on earth is he going on about? Well, he's saying this. He's saying, if you really, really knew me, 
if everything that I deliberately try and hide on the inside was on the outside for all to see, if the light was shone on it so that every detail could be examined, all our actions, all our thoughts, all our feelings, you know what? It would be horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. It would be hell. I relate to that, do you? If you're really honest with yourself, you'd agree with that too. Romans 3 very clearly says it, plain and clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, on the one hand, we don't want that truth out. We don't want to be known. We know instinctively that if somebody knew me completely, they wouldn't like me. They'd, they'd possibly despise me. Therefore, I have to hide. But on the other hand, we also know that's not good for us. We were built to live in relationship with others, community and love. Having everything locked away for no one to get at, no one to see, no one to share with, doesn't work either, does it? That's why we see counsellors and talk to our friends and use Facebook. Whatever that is. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Four Loves, he says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Everything out there. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, in that coffin, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. That's it. The great human dilemma. On the one hand, we so want to be known, yet on the other hand, we don't want people to really know us. And to this, Jesus says something phenomenal. He says, I know you completely, all the horrifying details, everything, even the bits you don't know yet, all your hellish thoughts and deeds, I know you right from the bottom of the pit. I know you right from the bottom of the pit. But get this, he doesn't stop there. Because actually, if, all, if that's all he said, Christianity would be like just all other religions and faiths and beliefs. Knowing us from the very bottom would only bring shame and fear and guilt and condemnation. It would be hell. But Jesus is different, so, so different. He says, I know you just as the Father knows me. How does the Father know Jesus? Well, the Bible tells us all over the place. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit of God descends on, uh, on him like a dove, and the Father declares from heaven. You can read it in Matthew 3. This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Before he's even lifted a finger in ministry. Jesus knew this through and through. It's what kept him going. It's what motivated him. It's what delighted him. 
John 17, Jesus says, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. The Father delights in Christ. They've been wrapped in each other's souls throughout all of eternity. They've been letting out into each other's hearts fully and everlastingly and completely an ocean of joy and honor and admiration and adoration. That's how God the Father knows Jesus, his Son. And do you know what? If you've put your trust in him, this Jesus, that's how he knows you. Really. It's right there. Hmm. When God looks at you guys, he sees only the beauty the radiance and the glory of Jesus. Jubilee, on the cross, Jesus took all our dishonor and disobedience and all of our disgrace and swapped it for his righteousness, glory, and perfect credit. By the grace of God, you are hidden in him. That is your new identity. You are in securely. You are securely in Christ. Secure in his love. That's who you are now. Clothed clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. How else would you want to be known? This Jesus is radically for you, gladly for you, never endingly for you. Don't be persuaded otherwise. Listen to him when he assures you that no one, no one, not even yourself, will snatch you out of his hand. Do you believe that? Yes. You should. And as sons and daughters of the living God, because that's what God sees you as, as sons, of do- as sons and daughters of the living God, you carry confidently his authority and his kingdom mission in your very souls. Does your life tell of that truth? So that really takes me on to my last point. The true shepherd gives himself totally for you, and he knows you totally like no one else does. How can he do that? Because he is God totally. Only because he is God totally. When Jesus says he's the good shepherd, you know what? He's being outrageous with the truth. And people want to kill him. That's what we've just read. We are not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Where have they got that from? How come they've come to that conclusion? Why are they getting so hot under the collar? Why are they getting so hot under the collar? What's so bad about Jesus saying he's the good shepherd? We seem to like it. Why didn't they? I'll tell you why. They will have read the famous King David psalm, Psalm 23. You'll have read it too, maybe at a funeral. You all know it, probably. But you won't have possibly read it like they did. Or thought about it in the way that these guys were thinking about it when they heard Jesus talking about him being the shepherd. Psalm 23, there it is, if you can read that. Psalm 23, verse 1, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. And the actual Hebrew word there for Lord is Yahweh. 
the totally holy, unutterable name of God. Yahweh Roi, actually. Yahweh, my shepherd, that's what it means. Jesus, quite frankly, is saying, I am your true shepherd, but I cannot give you all that is promised in Psalm 23, have a read, unless you first acknowledge me with all your heart and soul and strength and mind that I am Yahweh, the true creator God, your true shepherd. I am the Father, I'm one. That's why people were shocked. That's why they wanted to stone him. He is God through and through. Jubilee, is that how you see this Jesus that you worship? That we've been worshipping this morning? I mean, really see him. I'm not talking about just up here or you know, the things we read or the things you might be listening to. But deep, deep down here. Is that how you see him? Does your life demonstrate the reality of who you think, who you know this Jesus really is? You see, the more I've pondered this, I've felt God speak to me about obedience. We don't like the word obedience very much, do we? We'd rather talk about grace and forgiveness and freedom and don't hear what I'm not saying. These are all wonderful truths. We should stress uh, these very important aspects of the Christian faith, unique truths of the Christian faith. But you know what? So is obedience. Do you believe God is calling us to a life of obedience? And so really I want to end very quickly, very quickly, by considering three things, practical things hopefully, about obedience in our lives. And those are, he calls us to obey him wholly, continuously, and joyfully. Wholly, continuously, and joyfully. I was speaking to a counsellor at our, um, I'm a GP, I was speaking to a counsellor at our GP practice um, a few months ago now, and she told me of one of, about one of her clients who was having an affair. And every time she would bring her lover to the family home while her husband was away, she would have to turn all the photos in the house of her husband down because so, she just couldn't stand him looking on as her and her lover did what they did. That part of her very, that part of her life, she just couldn't allow even a photo of him to see. Intriguing. And really that got me thinking. Because for a lot of us, that's how it is with us and God. Isn't it? Jubilee, what areas of your life have you excluded from him? What areas of of your life have you turned his picture over? What areas of your life can you not look at him in the eye? Because he wants to be in on every, every bit. And for some of you, yes, that's going to be painful. Some of you, it might, some of you might just not like it. Some of you might not, re- not you feel that you're not ready. But Jesus says this morning, I am your shepherd. Trust me. I'll forgive you. I'll put my spirit in you. I'll restore you. I'll help you. But I cannot do that unless you let me in. Will you come on that journey of transformation as we heard prophetically this morning? Will you come on that journey of change with me? Are you willing to obey him wholly? No areas excluded. 
And do you know what? I'm not just talking about sin. Either we can hear these things and just think, oh, all the bad things. I'm not just talking about sin and temptation either. I'm also talking about all those steps of faith that God is calling you to take. It might be another country. Maybe it's writing songs. Maybe it's generosity and giving. Thanks, by the way, for the uh, gift day. 50K, well done. Thank you, God. Maybe it's volunteering in one of our charities. Maybe it's contributing in various settings. Maybe it's helping out. Maybe it's an issue of parenting or marriage or relationships. Maybe it's leadership. For some of you, it might be getting deeply involved in the community life of the church. Something that some of you, many of you, have been keeping at arm's length recently. For some of you, coming up to the end of your university years, it means staying on in Teesside. Even if it means less money, or more uncertainty, or difficult job prospects. Not all of you, some of you. Look him in the eye. Walk by faith and not by sight. Are you willing to obey him in every area? Are you genuinely able to thank him for whatever, whatever situation he brings your way? Obey him wholly. But also he wants you to obey him continuously. This is a discipline. A discipline that I haven't got right yet. You see, sheep, moment by moment, depend on their shepherd, don't they? And God says, practice that with me too. Moment by moment, ask God for advice. Speak to God. Pray. Understand what his will is for you. Start as soon as you get up. As soon as you open your eyes in the morning. Think about the challenges that you're going to face today. Think, where am I most likely to get grumpy? Where am I most likely to get disappointed? What temptations are possibly going to come up? What's important? Where am I likely to fall? Be prepared and cry out to your God. Make it a habit. Try it this week. Obey him wholly and continuously. Get it into your soul. And finally, obey him joyfully. A lot of you aren't doing that. Me too. Sometimes. In the Near East, the sheep were the shepherd's pride and joy and honor and wealth. The sheep were the shepherd's glory, if you like. And you know what? That is how Yahweh Rohi, the Lord your shepherd, Jesus, sees you. Now, we've got to be careful. It's not that he needs you. No, he's totally self-existent. I am that I am says our God. But radically, quite phenomenally, he chooses to voluntarily bind up his honor, his glory, his joy with your honor, glory, and joy. You can read about it in Ephesians 1 if you like. Amazing, really. And do you know what? If we get this, it brings about a radical joy in you, a comfort that is difficult to beat. It motivates you to obey him. Not out of guilt, not out of a list of do-its or rules and regulations, not out of shame, not out of pressure, but out of sheer, pure joy. 
What brings joyful obedience? Knowing that I was the joy that was set before Jesus, that motivated him to endure the cross. What brings joyful obedience? Knowing that God so loved me that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jubilee, this is very important. Very important. It starts with us. It starts in our hearts. Obey him wholly. Obey him continuously, moment by moment. And obey him joyfully, realizing what he's done for us. That's it, really. If the band can come up, that would be great. (coughs) Are you allowing the truth of Jesus being your shepherd to get into your very soul? Have you really considered the implications of this for your life? That he gave himself totally for you, that he has beaten your last enemy, death. That he knows you as the Father knows him. Phenomenal. That he is the one true God who commands your joyful obedience all the time in absolutely everything. Think about it. Think about it this week. If we could all stand, that would be great. Uh, We're going to take a collection.